2: Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Night after night, in city after city, there are reports of shots fired, often with lethal consequences. We asked our Ted Koppel to find out what's behind this contagion of gun violence on the nation's streets.
3: The national epidemic of gun violence continues to confound the experts. Very often, the father figure is in prison. Or dead or gone, but that may be also true of the mother.
4: something got to change. We can't keep on burning our sons. We can't keep on burning our daughters.
5: Why is this still happening? I know there's a saying, hurt people, hurt people. Where I come from, hurt people, kill people. Coming up on
3: Sunday morning...
2: Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. For the Woodstock generation, their names evoke a sense of deja vu. Together they made beautiful music. But as Anthony Mason will tell us, that harmony ended offstage.
6: Our house is a very, very, very fine house.
7: Just over half a century ago, a supergroup released one of rock's seminal albums. How would you describe the period of recording that album?
3: Chaotic.
7: You talk about how you guys butt heads all the time.
3: Well, it was glancing blows, but they were continuous. Yeah. And that tends to numb your skull, and you turn into numb skulls.
7: Crosby, Stills, and Nash remember joining up with Neil Young to record Deja Vu later on Sunday Morning.
2: The frantic American push to evacuate Kabul is drawing to a close, especially at risk Afghans who served as U.S. translators. But as Lee Cowan explains, their fight for freedom sometimes continues long after they're out of harm's way.
8: Where's the horn on this? (coughs) Oh, that works.
7: He's a stranger in a not-so-strange land. After all, the U.S. was the country he fought beside to better his
8: own. I apply for a political asylum for the threats and persecution I had for my life by returning back home.
7: The battle of an Afghan interpreter to see if the country he served would serve him back. Ahead on Sunday morning. Faith Saley talks with
2: top chefs Padma Lakshmi. David Martin revisits the troubling tale of Alpha Platoon. Plus, Steve Hartman Commentary from Billie Jean King and more on this Sunday morning for the 29th of August, 2021. We'll be right back. This Tuesday, August 31st, is the deadline for U.S. forces to leave Afghanistan perhaps leaving thousands of those who helped us behind, forced to fend for themselves. Lee Cowan has the story of an Afghan refugee closer to home, with an entire town looking out for him.
7: At first glance, Iowa Falls, Iowa, might be an odd place for a devout Muslim. Pork, for example, forbidden in Islam, is pretty big business here. And there isn't a mosque for miles.
8: Okay, where's the horn on this? Oh, that works.
7: And yet, for Zalmay Niazi, an Afghan who goes simply by Z, Iowa Falls has been the answer to his prayers. Do you feel that Iowa Falls is your home? Iowa Falls is home. He came to the U.S. after serving as an interpreter, for both U.S. and Allied forces in eastern Afghanistan. Every mission made him a target of the Taliban.
8: I have seen a lot of my very good friends have been killed and we've been given body bags to just pick something for the family. Did your Humvee ever get hit? Uh, plenty of times.
7: He had a bullet taken out of his arm. He nearly lost an eye to shrapnel. And when the bus he was riding in drove over a roadside bomb, he nearly lost a leg. When folks in Iowa Falls heard of his service...
2: It's not just his personality, it's his character.
7: People like Dwayne and Emily Krukenberg didn't just welcome him. (laughs) They practically saluted him.
2: He would do anything for anybody, and he showed that with the service he did for us.
9: He's probably more of an American than some people that are born here. What few people
7: knew, however, was just how he got here in the first place. In 2014... The U.S. contractors he had been working for in Kabul flew him to Washington, D.C. for business. Z was thrilled, but he had no intention of leaving Afghanistan
8: for good. If everybody leaves that country, who's going to fix it?
7: Hours after he landed, his parents found a warning,
8: one of several they've received from the Taliban, nailed to their front door. In short, it said if Z went home, he'd be dead,
7: and so would his family. The Taliban had already made good on past threats. He says they murdered his uncle and forced his parents into hiding.
8: It was the hardest decision of my life that what am I going to do? I just didn't want it any more pain. Just didn't want my family to live like immigrants in their own country anymore. Z had no choice but to apply for political asylum. Oh, you don't keep your car clean, Papa.
7: He had nothing but that. the clothes on his back when he arrived in Iowa Falls. One of the first to help him.
8: So you got quite a bit of work. Yeah.
7: Was a giant of a man, yeah, both in stature and in spirit. I don't let him speak his foreign language around me because then I think he's talking about me. <laughs> Mike Ingabritz so uh, never served in the armed forces. At six foot ten, he was too tall. But offering kindness, he says, doesn't have a height restriction. Why did you do that? Why did you give him a chance? Oh, you get a kid that's, let's say, 10,000 miles away from home, three-time
8: wounded veteran, and he says, can you help me? You don't turn him down, you do the right thing. I told him that I'm buying this house. He looked at me, said, are you stupid?
7: (laughs) (laughs) Mike loaned Z money to buy an old house that was practically falling down and helped him turn it into a home. Z's pretty handy that way, so much so he started his own business. Z Handyman Services. He quickly got a reputation as the contractor the town could count on. Just ask those working at the local optometry shop, where Z was installing a new ceiling. How important is he to the community as a whole, you think?
10: Oh, my God. Everybody here knows him. Everybody knows that he would do everything he could for anybody here.
6: Always willing to help. Um, plus, he's a lot of fun. <laughs> is he? <laughs> yes. Everyone in
7: town pretty much assumed that Z would be granted asylum. But when his interview with U.S. immigration officials finally came around, something didn't seem quite
8: right. Uh, my interview was almost seven hours. Seven. seven hours. Z had to account for everything, including his
7: childhood, and one day in particular, when Z says he was forced to give the Taliban a piece of bread at gunpoint.
8: Or they warned. You will kill your parents or we will burn your house. And as a 9 years old kid, not even nine, I was scared. I didn't know what else to do to protect my family. That's what they wanted. This is that letter that I got from the government. Three months ago, Z got
7: a letter from U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services that suggested that that morsel of bread he gave the Taliban all those years ago could be viewed as aiding an enemy, an allegation which could get him deported. You have engaged in terrorist activity. Did you feel betrayed? I did. I got stabbed in the back. As Afghanistan fell to the Taliban over the past few weeks, the question on everyone's mind was, if the U.S. is risking life and limb to evacuate people fearing for their lives, why on earth... Would they send someone like Z back?
8: We're supposed to be reasonable people,
7: and to me, we're better than this.
2: I won't let it happen.
7: The residents of Iowa Falls quickly went into action, including Mike's wife, Linda.
2: I mean, everybody in Iowa Falls would go to jail for him, I think.
7: In a matter of weeks, the town raised more than $40,000 to hire Z the best immigration lawyers they could find. But as the scenes outside Kabul airport became more and more desperate, Z was getting more and more anxious, not only for himself, but for his family. But then, a bit of potential good news. U.S. immigration officials won't comment on why or what, if anything, has really changed pertaining to Z's case, but Z's attorney was notified two weeks ago that the U.S. has now agreed to re-examine his application for asylum. In Iowa Falls, it doesn't really matter the why. All that matters is that Z just might have a chance to stay where they think he belongs.
9: I want to propose a toast to our friend Z that he
0: forever stays in Iowa Falls. Come here.
8: I promise I will.
0: <laughs> For Z, it's
7: bittersweet. His family is still stuck back in Afghanistan, the country he nearly died to rebuild. And he vows the fight isn't over yet.
8: It takes a lot to make a community, make, make a country great. And I did it, I will do it again. And I, I will stand for what's right.
2: Kevin, please pack your knives and go. Thank you guys. She's the host of Top Chef, Bravo's long-running cooking competition show. But there is so much more to her story. Faith Saley is in conversation with the remarkable Padma Lakshmi. This is a beautiful time at the market because you have all of your beautiful summer vegetables
11: and fruits. There's so much color. Are those all tomatoes? They're all tomatoes. Come here.
10: Here's a tip when visiting a farmer's market with Padma Lakshmi.
11: What would you Um, use that
10: for? I wouldn't use this. Okay.
11: (laughs) Follow her lead. I love these guys. I love frying them. And learn along the way. These are my Taki. These are great. I would just drizzle these with a lot of olive oil. When Lakshmi talks food, take note. I will look at what's here and I will make up a recipe based on, you know, what I find. After all, she's the host, judge, and an executive producer of the hit Bravo
10: show, Top Chef. Lisa,
11: please pack your knives and go.
10: And she highlights immigrant culture and cuisine in Hulu's Taste the Nation.
11: This is my first rodent. What does it taste like to you? It tastes like
10: chicken. (laughs) She's also an author, activist, and UN Goodwill ambassador.
11: You could say Lakshmi has a lot on her plate. I feel like I'm just finally hitting my stride, you know, <laughs> and of course it takes a while to fully cook as a person and to figure out who you are. And to know
10: who Padma Lakshmi is, it's important to know where she came from and how much she's overcome.
11: In my life, I've had a lot of happen, you know. If people don't know your story, they might look at you and think you lead a charmed life. I hope I do now. I would like to. <laughs> Before
10: bestseller lists, Emmy nominations, and magazine covers spiced up her life, Lakshmi's roots were humble.
11: You didn't grow up with a lot of privilege. No, I didn't. I was born in India, and my mother divorced my father when I was two. She came to America. And I came here, I joined her when I was four. I came here on Halloween night. (laughs) And I thought, America, this beautiful land of plenty where all you have to do is dress up in a funny costume and they give you candy. Not even like money, candy. After her arrival in America,
10: Lakshmi found joy and wonder in the melting pot of New York City. It would not last. At
11: seven years old, her life was forever changed. It happened with a relative of my mother's uh, second husband and... um, I was sexually molested, and I went, you know, I was sent back to India for a year and a half. I will say in my mother's defense, she did the best she could to get me out of there as soon as possible, and that was the quickest way to do that. Uh, In retrospect, I'm sure she would not make that decision. Lakshmi
10: returned to America and attended high school in Los Angeles. She also had a part-time job at a mall. And you met a young man there? Yes. And what happened?
11: We were dating and, uh, you know, one night um, I was only allowed to stay out so late because it was New Year's and I was 16 and, you know, I was sexually assaulted. He raped me.
10: Lakshmi kept this secret for more than 30 years until she penned an op-ed for the New York Times in 2018.
11: When somebody robs you of your innocence, whether it's at 7 or 16 or whatever, when you don't have dominion over your own body, it leaves you with a lifelong anxiety mm-hmm. that always lingers in some form. And that, to me, is the greatest crime of sexual assault. There would be more trauma for the then-teenage
10: Lakshmi when she was seriously injured in a car accident.
11: I fractured my hip and I broke my arm, my right arm, and my my metacarpal here.
10: You have
11: a scar. I do. I have a big scar.
10: Surprisingly, that seven-inch wound would help launch her modeling career.
11: I hated it, but then I was you know, shot by a very great photographer named Helmut Newton, and he liked the scar. I think that your flaws and your scars really make you who you are. Photoshoots led to acting roles. Are there any provisions? I'm hungry.
10: But it was her culinary passion that really put her on the map when she joined Top Chef. What did you think?
11: That was a little sweet. A little? The show just wrapped its 18th season. Eric, I loved your concept. I had the biggest problem with your food. What makes Eric. it so successful? It's very compelling to see someone strive to be the best at what they do for a living no matter what it is. And so you don't have to be professional to have really deep, fully formed opinions about food. Lakshmi's made a name
10: for herself professionally, but her personal life has also made headlines. In 2004, she married one of the most famous authors in the world, Salman Rushdie. They divorced three years later. In her memoir, she said Rushdie called her a quote, bad investment.
11: I wish him well. I care about him and I really don't want to say anything more about him.
10: What she will talk about is a painful
11: condition she and millions of women suffer from,
10: endometriosis, a disease where tissue grows outside the uterus and can lead to infertility.
11: Because of my experience with endometriosis, you know, once I got the care that I needed, then I started tasting life for a normal woman who doesn't suffer with chronic pain. She's co-founder of the Endometriosis
10: Foundation of America. When not championing a cause or working, she's with her daughter, Krishna. The single mother co-parents her 11-year-old with
11: Krishna's father, Adam Dell. I always knew I wanted to be a mom. I didn't know I would have this much fun. I'm very lucky. Given the endometriosis, Mm -hmm. was it fair to say that Krishna is a miracle? Definitely. I call her a miracle. I mean, literally, I don't know how it happened. I have like some tinfoil and rabbit ears holding it all together in here. I am not even kidding. That miracle and that mother-daughter
10: bond helped inspire her new children's book, Tomatoes for Neela.
11: Krishna grew up in this farmer's market. You know, Tomatoes for Neela takes place here.
10: The book comes out this week, just in time for Lakshmi's 51st birthday. Have you ever had a Coca-Cola cake?
11: No. I surprised her with a cake I made. No pressure. It's sweet and creamy and has a lot of give. (laughs) A
10: sweet review from Padma Lakshmi, a woman who's turned pain into power and strives to empower others.
11: I am an open book. I have lived the life I've lived because there's nothing that I have to hide. And I would like young women to know that even if you have a late start or even if you've been through stuff, It's okay. You know, sometimes you just have to get up and dust yourself off and keep walking.
8: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? (laughs) Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
2: It's been called America's other epidemic. We ask senior contributor Ted Koppel to take a closer look at the gun violence that seems so much a part of this summer of 2021.
3: A sweltering August night in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Baltimore. A young black man has been shot and killed. The murder gets barely a mention in the news. The fact is, as the city's police commissioner, Michael Harrison, knows all too well, something like this happens almost daily. I'm sure you can recite the numbers in your sleep. Number of homicides. Well, right now we're at 202, and
5: we're even at 202 for the same time last year.
3: Our interview was in the morning. That night's homicide would be the 203rd. This is a predominantly black city, 60-some-odd percent. That's about right. And yet the number of murders... I believe, is up around 93% black in this city, the number of murder victims. I think that percentage is is close to accurate. The racial disparity is staggering. According to the Centers for Disease Control, black men are 14 times more likely to be killed by a firearm than white men. That's nationwide. Explain that to me. While there may be many
5: who are affiliated with gangs. Many of the murders are retaliations from previous bad acts, and many of them are just individual arguments that turn violent, where young men are using guns to settle their disputes because they don't know how to solve their conflicts any other way.
9: There is almost a contagion phenomenon that one shooting will lead to another, it leads to another. Daniel Webster,
3: director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Prevention and Policy, knows that gun violence in Baltimore has deep roots
9: if you would go and talk to the young people 15 16 year olds who might be shooting pretty good guess that no one is really taking care of them so to make money in this underground economy either through robbery through drugs you typically have to have a gun
3: when you say no one they can rely on very often the the father figure is in prison or dead or
5: gone but That may be also true of the mother. Kids don't have an understanding.
3: Meet Corey Winfield.
5: The worst thing that happened to us as street people is when we lost our fathers.
3: He's a site director for an organization called Catholic Charities Safe Streets. His credibility depends in large part on what he did when he was young.
5: Let's take my story. I didn't raise my oldest daughter.
3: Corey was in prison
5: convicted of murder. When I came home and my daughter looked at me like I was a stranger, that was profound to me. So when I tell them young men, come get these pampers we got in the office, and make sure you
3: raise your child. So one of the tools in your armory is pampers? Yes. Yes. For about 14 years now, Corey has been what's called a violence interrupter which can be as dangerous as it sounds or as mundane as organizing community movie nights.
5: How much time did you do? I did 21 years. Right Now I'm in my 50s. When I got locked up, I was 17. When I came home, I was 38. So one thing I can tell you is what's going to happen when you point that gun and when you point that trigger.
3: Police Commissioner Harrison knows he's battling a culture of gun violence, and it's a national problem.
5: There are no gun stores in Baltimore, so they're coming from outside of the city. About 50 percent are coming from outside of the state. And then, Ted, there's the culture of carrying guns. Same number who are arrested for illegally carrying guns is the same demographic of people who become the victims of shootings and perpetrators of shootings.
3: Too often, those left behind to pull the pieces of broken families back together are the women, like Rashida Murray, a single mother of five. Her youngest son,
4: Gerard, is
3: nine. His father was murdered.
4: He had an altercation with someone, and they went and got a gun and came back and killed him.
3: And two of your boys were killed?
4: The twins.
3: Not at the same time?
4: No. They were seven years apart.
3: In 2012, one of the twins, Roderick Burton, went out to buy some Advil for a toothache. He went
4: to the store with his friends, and he never came back. So I heard these shots, boom, 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 boom. And the first thing I can think is, where's Roderick? Where's my baby at? He was 18. And I go outside, and it was him.
3: And then your second son, the second twin,
4: my second twin, Romar Burton, he was murdered September 5th, 2019.
3: How did you find out?
4: I found that out 10.30 that night when the detectives knocked on my door as I was getting in the bed. And they had a picture and I'm thinking, okay, they coming to tell me that he might have did something to somebody or he, they was looking for him. Never to tell me that my son was a victim of a homicide. My second one. <laughs> A twin, my second child. Romer
3: was twenty-six. He left behind a daughter who'll soon turn four. It's almost beyond belief for one woman to have gone through what you've gone through.
4: Something gotta change. We can't keep on burning out sons. We can't keep on burning out daughters. These little kids that's going through all this trauma and all this tragedy, and how they feel about growing up without their parents. My son asked me, is he going to ever get another father? That's hard.
5: So young men that you see in our orange shirts, they from here.
4: In
3: Baltimore, as in so many other cities, gun violence is an epidemic. Corey Winfield and his young Safe Streets recruits were once carriers of the disease. Now, with additional support of the city, How you they're trying to control the spread.
5: They was once a part of the problem. They decided to change their life and be a part of the solution.
3: Former gang members?
5: Not uh, everybody. Typically in our neighborhood, that's that's more of drugs and robberies. The cycle of violence, it begins when you're young yeah. and it just goes on. Perpetual. It never stops. Well, trauma. Trauma in, in our neighborhood, like the helicopters, let me, and
3: sirens. Let me just ask you. Police chopper?
5: Yes. Yes. Don't forget, this is a violent area. So just because it's quiet now doesn't mean that it will always stay like that. At any time of day
3: or night, this can erupt. And it did. That night, the young man I told you about at the beginning of this story, nameless in the news, but not to Corey. He and I talked again the next day. Bad night, huh? Yeah, very bad night. Tell me.
5: Young man that we was I was working closely with, trying to get him off the street, was ambushed and murdered last night. Uh, so there's days like this when I really. It hurts you the most.
3: Do you know why he was ambushed? I
5: don't know, but um, right now we're working on stopping the retaliation. It's a very volatile situation. Who's going to retaliate? Well, that's the cycle of violence. My brother's life or my friend's life, I'm not going to let this go. It's the same thing over and over and over again. You have to forgive somebody in order for somebody to live. And then they had come back and say, well, how you know? I say, because I have found forgiveness for the man who killed my little brother. Your little brother was murdered? Yes, he was. And you knew who did it? Yes, I did. I found out who did it the very next day. So I tracked him down. So the night when I was going to kill him, the police pulled up right there. So I left, and when I got home, My mother was sitting on the sofa. She grabbed me by my elbows, pulled me close, and she said, "Please stop! I can't lose another
3: baby." Corey's little brother Jawan Winfield was 21. Let me ask you a very profound question. Well, the question is not profound, but the answer will be: Why is this still happening? I know it's a saying, that hurt people, hurt people. But where I come
5: from, hurt people, kill people. A simple step on your shoe, you don't know the outcome of it. And there's too many young people, uneducated young people with guns. You're looking at hurt and you're looking at anger and you're looking at a race of people, young people with no vision. I have vision, that's what keep me working. My vision is that one day, We're going to have no murders for a whole year. Not just Baltimore. I'm talking about gun violence now. Not just Baltimore, but the United States, my country. I, 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 I vision that. I vision that.
2: this week of the start of the U.S. Open here in New York, opinion this morning from tennis legend Billie Jean King,
12: whose memoir, All In, has just been released. When I was 12, I was sitting at the Los Angeles Tennis Club when I noticed that everyone who played tennis wore white clothes, white shoes, and everyone who played was white. I asked myself, where's everyone else? Even then, I'd experienced sexism and I'd seen racism at work. I just knew things had to change. So from that moment on, I decided to commit my life to being a champion of equality for all. The best leaders lead for everyone, and yet there are those who think women only lead for women. Why would we marginalize ourselves by focusing on half the world when we can have real impact by focusing on the entire population. Sometimes people say to me, thanks for what you did for women's tennis. I smile and I say thank you. But they would never say that to a male tennis player. They would say, thank you for what you did for tennis. I've always tried to help all of tennis, not just women's tennis. Look at Naomi Osaka. Last year, she used her platform to ask what the Black Lives Matter movement means to us. More recently, she and U.S. Olympic gymnast Simone Biles prompted important worldwide discussions about mental health. Los Angeles Lakers owner Jeannie Buss and Kim Ng of the Miami Marlins are two of the highest-ranking sports executives in the country. They aren't managing women's teams. They are leading men's teams. Women get more attention when we do something in the men's arena. We don't do it alone. I've had many male allies champion me. This is a time of fresh thinkers who are challenging entrenched power and valuing inclusivity over divisiveness, action over reaction. And none of us is disqualified from leading for any reason. We all bleed red. Each of us is an influencer. So next time you see a woman leading, don't limit or underestimate her. Show up, stand up, speak up. Two years
2: ago, now retired Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher stood accused by many of his own men of horrific war crimes. Gallagher was ultimately acquitted of all but one charge. But the story doesn't end there. Here's national security correspondent David Martin.
13: This platoon of Navy SEALs went off to war in 2017 as a band of brothers. By the time they came home, some of them had turned on their leader, Eddie Gallagher, a man they once revered.
9: When I found out he was my chief, I was excited. I saw how he did business and ran our training, he was always motivated. That's exactly what you're looking for in a chief. Former SEAL
13: Josh Vrenz was a member of Alpha Platoon. Did you see him as a, uh, a role model? Absolutely. He was someone I, I looked up to. But after months of vicious house-to-house fighting in Iraq, Vrenz and other members of Alpha Platoon did the unthinkable. They broke the code of silence and accused their leader of war crimes. Until now, none of them have been interviewed on
9: television. If your loyalty lies with a a guy like Eddie Gallagher, then you need to reevaluate why
6: you're a Navy SEAL. A lot of them were so torn apart by what happened on that deployment that they immediately left the SEALs completely disillusioned.
13: New York Times reporter David Phillips has written a book about Gallagher's platoon called simply
6: Alpha. You've got a bunch of exceptional Alpha males all together, and sometimes that drove people to do things that got so far away from the values that they thought they would have represented that it struck other SEALs as crazy.
9: Friends had never been in combat and ached to get in it. If you're a United States Navy SEAL and you don't, that's like being a football player and not wanting to play in the Super Bowl. That's our job. Gallagher gave Friends and
13: the rest of Alpha Platoon exactly what they wanted. They were supposed to stay 1,500 yards behind the front line backing up Iraqi troops as they retook the city of Mosul from ISIS. But Vrenz says Gallagher told them to turn off their GPS trackers so they could get closer to the fight without
9: headquarters knowing. Originally, that was Eddie's idea, but at the same time, we were signing on with it. Anybody that wasn't cool with it um, was kind of labeled as uh, a coward. The rest of us, you know, we we wanted to get after it. And, you know, unfortunately, that meant breaking the rules.
6: There's a a subculture of SEALs who feel that, to a certain extent, they are uh, above the law and should be, that the real fighting, the dirty fighting that must be done by unconventional forces, sometimes isn't as pretty as the rule book makes it sound.
13: Some members of Alpha began to believe Gallagher was needlessly risking casualties, exposing his men to enemy fire on this rooftop, for instance, where a helmet cam captured the moment one of them got hit. As Phillips tells it, some days Gallagher would hole up in a sniper position and come back bragging about his kills. At first, the SEALs
6: passed it off as just talk. And then some of the platoon started to see what they thought was his bullets actually connect with old men, with school-age girls, and they had to realize, wait a minute, all those stories that he's been telling... Maybe those aren't jokes.
13: Then the Iraqis brought in a barely conscious ISIS fighter who had been wounded in an airstrike. A helmet cam showed Gallagher taking charge of the prisoner. The rest of that video has vanished, but three SEALs said they witnessed Gallagher stab the prisoner. Afterwards, some of the men lined up for a trophy photo with the body, but later claimed they only did it to please Gallagher. Why do the world's toughest dudes seem so
6: scared of Gallagher? Eddie Gallagher is a popular, respected dude with connections all over the SEAL base back home. If you intend to stay in your career and move up as a young SEAL, uh, going against a guy like Eddie Gallagher is probably the worst decision you can make.
13: Eleven months later, Vrens and other members of Alpha told NCIS what they say happened
9: so toxic at this point.
13: they were not just diming gallagher out they were breaking the code of silence
9: how am i supposed to teach my kid between right and wrong and look him in the eye if if i'm not doing everything that i can gallagher was charged
13: with premeditated murder but the prosecution's case fell apart in a made for tv moment when their star witness suddenly confessed that it was he who killed the prisoner Gallagher's acquittal was hailed by then-President Trump, and the newly retired Navy SEAL returned the favor by presenting the commander-in-chief with an ISIS flag. Today, he lives in the Florida panhandle with his wife, Andrea, keeping a high profile in the culture wars. I'm not trying to hide anything. On 60 Minutes, he steadfastly maintained his innocence. Did you stab that fighter? No, I did not. According to Gallagher, he and three other SEALs performed emergency procedures on the fast sinking prisoner. Were you keeping him alive?
7: Yeah, we were, I mean, as they were doing the procedures, he was alive, but he it wasn't looking good.
13: A year later on the Apple podcast, The Line, we heard a very different story. The grain of
7: truth in the whole thing is that that ISIS fighter was killed by us and that Nobody at that time had a problem with it. We killed that guy. Our intention was to kill him. Everybody was on board. Not one person Your intention was, like, was to kill him? It was to do medical scenarios on him until he died. Is that nursing to death? Yeah, if you want to put it in a nice way.
13: Dan Taberski conducted that interview. Were you surprised? Shocked. Just on the floor shocked. Couldn't believe it, could not
1: believe it. After all this time that he was willing to change his story like that was incredibly shocking for me, incredibly
13: surprising. Gallagher's attorney claims the editing of Taberski's interview was misleading. The Navy says the case is closed. For Josh Friends and other members of Alpha Platoon, the case of Eddie Gallagher remains open.
9: His story just keeps changing. The only way he's going to heal and and come out on the other side of this is if he comes clean. His greatest punishment right now is living with himself.
2: Thank you for listening. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning.